1: Welcome to countercharge I'm Jeremy DuVall. And I'm rough enough. It's back again, Jeremy and I. Uh, Jeremy, it's been far too long, um, especially considering the big announcement you've uh, just dropped on us. Congratulations. Thank
2: you very much. Uh, freshly fianced, as they say. I did get engaged this last weekend, which was pretty great. You know, we had had a more extravagant, or I had had a more extravagant plan. We originally supposed to be go to Disneyland this October, And I uh we're big Disney buff, so I was gonna ask her in front of the castle and have Mickey like take our picture and like you can like talk to the cast there and they'll help you film it and do like the whole shebang. But with COVID, that didn't happen, so we went camping with her parents out at Bodega Bay, which is a campground we go to once a year. It's like it's pretty cool. It's like a campground, but it's on sort of like half sand dunes, half regular ground, so it's right by the beach. Um so we had a great time and I just felt like uh Life's too short. You know what I mean? With all this craziness. So why wait when you know when you know you want to do something? So I asked and she said yes. So very exciting.
1: And and the more important question is, what did the pup say?
2: She said, yes, she's my partner in crime, because since I've been working at home, she doesn't understand Stella's our pit bull. She doesn't understand this magical world that she now lives in where she gets hugs and attention all day long when i work from home that's awesome so she she's like covid has been the best thing ever in her life just because there's someone home with her all the time now <laughs> you know so sometimes uh rob and i will get together and uh do a little chat about uh listener topics or sort of like a check-in on what we're doing and we had put a post rob on the counter trash facebook page and it had some things. Uh, above 100 or so comments of just questions. So we're just going to kind of rapid fire a la List Builder Studio and just sort of answer these questions, uh, thoughts or, or topics or funny stuff that comes in and sort of just have more of a casual style episode, uh, a little rapid fire. And I think it's cool, Rob. I mean, I know that like you had done this post. I think, you know, the amount of comments we got, we have some really good questions here.
1: Yeah, there's some there's some really interesting things to talk about.
2: So we got a question from the Always Sunny and Panathor maestro himself, Steve Forster, who asks, if you could make yourself a living legend, what would be your stats? So what kind of living legend would you be,
1: Rob? This is a fun question, and this is one that a lot of folks, a lot of TOs over the years um, have done that to themselves to put them inside of their own tournament. I know, not Northern Kings, was the one that uh, Dan and Jonathan – Dan King and Jonathan Falls. The Fourfoot
2: and, Snake GT.
1: That's right. So yeah. the Foot Snake guys have done this before. And I know some of the Texas guys have done it. So we've never actually done that for Blue City. We never actually put ourselves into the game at, a la A Living Legend. However, we sort of did it tangentially in, in that we created spells that had ourselves worked into it. So I'm going to take that spell that I created... And we're going to turn it into a living legend. So, you know, it's uh, basically, I think I would be a spellcaster in the vein of Namagarok, But I would have a special spell that would be called the Force of Enough, And it would allow me to move terrain. It's an 18-inch range. And Force of Enough is going to be Force of Enough 8. And each success would be 2 inches of movement on a piece of terrain. Now, that may sound broken and it probably is. So I'm going to I'm 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 a man. I'm a man of, you know, many talents, but I will concede here that I probably I'm going to be defense 3. That's going to be my concession, but I am going to fly. Cool. That that's that's me. I, I'd be a pretty weak spellcaster with a pretty unique spell to be able to move terrain because it was really fun in that event to see people use it because you're able to move terrain like in front of a unit that's gonna charge to either cross hinder charges or in some cases to, to block lines of sight. It was it was it was really a really a neat thing. So that would be me. How about you?
2: I think I would be um, some sort of Basilean angel special character, and I would have hugs from heaven would be my special ability, <laughs> which would be like aura of life, but instead it would be D three heals back from my hugs when i would hug everyone at tournaments and then i would have a special spell called uh, white noise negator which i could cast on combat units that would make them uh, fight in the following combat round with only half their attacks so basically giving people hugs and calming people down so that's, that's would be me.
1: I got another one. You probably have a, have a weapon called the Spear of Positivity, and you yes. can throw it down from heaven, and mm-hmm. wherever it hits, it generates a 12-inch bubble of radiance of life. I, I, I dig it. I dig it. I dig it. It's always fun to, to chat about that kind of stuff, uh, and it's always fun to go to those events where either they've created their own monsters or their own living legends. It just gives some flavor to the game, and uh, I, I'm always a big fan of those tournaments that do it, especially when they don't take it too serious.
2: And I think there's a couple different ways you can go with that, Rob, right? Sometimes in tournaments, when people do tournament special characters, they just blow them out, right? I think of Emerald Dragon GT had some, uh, and then the um, Bug Eater had some just unbelievably powerful special characters. But they tried to leverage that by if you killed your opponent's special character, you got a a lot of tournament points. And then I think there's another way, right? Like, I know Rashad for Riddle of Steel GT, he has all the characters from the Conan story. So Conan, Valeria, um, also Doom, you know, all those guys. And he does them more akin to, like, normal characters, just a little bit more buff. So I think adding in special characters to your tournament is super fun. And you can take it kind of down both ways, right? As having them be super powerful, fun narrative, or having them... Still have some flavor but be more in line with regular characters. So I think there's a few different ways you could do that.
1: So let's go to the second question and I'm gonna read the question but then I'm gonna change it a little bit. I think so. Matthew James says, uh, who is your second favorite guest of the year after Matthew James? I'm just gonna say let's 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 say who's our favorite guest that wasn't a mantic or an RC person. So, you know, huge thanks to to Ronnie and to Matt Gilbert and Rob Berman and Matt James and, and all of you know, Patrick Allen and Elliot and all the the, the, the Mantic folks we've had on this year. it's been I mean, this has probably been one of our best years in terms of really, really opening up that correspondence and that dialogue with Mantic Games. Um, so that was been amazing. But let's take them out of the picture. Who was who your favorite guest from this year so far? And I, I know who mine is, so I'm going to let you go first.
2: Okay, that's a good question. Because like you said, Rob, we really had some great people on the show this year. You know, Alex, Steve, and... Matt have been fully indoctrinated into the show, and that's allowed us then to expand our circle of guests through UK, Australia, and all over the world. So we've really had some really amazing guests. Um, I think probably one of my favorite is someone that we had just recently, which was Ash from Guerrilla Miniature Games' YouTube channel. You know, him and I are a similar age. I think we both, you know, grew up in sort of the same era of gaming. So I felt like a lot of kinship with him based on, you know, where we come from in our own gamer origin story. And I think uh, he's a, a content creator that is. Uh, game agnostic in a way that he does content for all miniature games, and if you haven't checked out that episode, I'd recommend go and listening to it, because I know, like you, Rob, we play lots of different miniature games. You know, Kings of War is our favorite game, but we play other games, so just sort of in our tribalized, polarized world, it was really interesting to have, like, a psychological debate or or, or, our psychological discussion about why people play certain games or why maybe someone only plays one game or why people play more games. So that was like a really interesting um, conversation, I thought, uh, exploring that idea of what it means uh, to play multiple game systems. Who was your favorite?
1: Well, mine was an easy one. It was Duncan Rhodes because pulling the the curtain back a little bit, Mark typically doesn't, do a lot of uh, episodes, right? He, he really focuses on narrative workshop and maybe once a month we get something out of him. And he kept this one completely close to the vest, didn't know anything about it, and all of sudden, he said, Rob, here's the new episode with Duncan Rhodes. And my jaw hit the... I was like, how did you get Duncan Rhodes? Now, and I usually beat him up for being that fanboy, you know, that like rah, rah, rah. But like this is the one time where it paid off, where his, uh, his stalking actually... Captured us a great, great guest. So that that was mine. It was just, and it's really maybe not so much from the content, just from the, the shock value that it received. Cause I was just like, how the heck did we get, you know, Duncan to, to join us on Countercharge?
2: I think we've grown a lot this year, Rob, but still, like, I think this last year we've had the privilege of having a lot of bigger named guests come on the show. Um, and that's definitely one of them. Uh, and like you said, you know, we all love Mark. He's like our, uh, you know, Uncle Mark in the basement playing his basement games. And he's got his advanced squad leader out and he's doing his thing. And he does the narrative workshop, which are awesome episodes. You know, him and Brandon Ross Bond uh, from Wing Hazar really developed like a great relationship. And we have a really great relationship with those guys. So I know as a fan of narrative, I'm super thankful for those guys coming on. But basically it was like. We, we have a Facebook chat of the host, right? And Mark's just like, oh, yeah, I got an episode done. It's all ready. And it's like, what's the episode for? And it's like, oh, it's just me interviewing Duncan Rhodes. And it was like, what? <laughs> not only is that awesome, but the fact that Mark was able to keep that to himself and not tell anyone <laughs> until it was like finally edited and just bask in the glory of being like the OG of Counter It's Like, Mark, you never have to do another episode again. You're good you know, so, and same Felix too. Felix had kept it close to the vest too, but that's one thing I, I really appreciate out of the narrative workshop. Rob is not only like what Mark does, but it's him and Felix
1: and, um, you know, ben. all
2: Ben, right. Ben N- Nathan daughter. when he
1: comes on for the RPGs. Yeah,
2: exactly. And they've had all those great, uh, uh authors on that show. So, in a way, it's like the narrative workshop has developed its own sort of like sub subculture or like subgroup of guests. so and it's good. You know, again, we try to do content a little bit of content for everyone based on, you know, what sort of aspect of the hobby they're really into.
1: Well, the next question we got is concerning um blocks of inventory. and Mike Rossi asks, in your opinion, does something need to change with blocks of infantry? It seems to me that a 1416 Defense four block can't take a charge from normal cavalry, etc., without dying. Or they get to countercharge and do two wounds before being wiped out the next turn. I've heard the argument of just taking more but blocks of infantry seem to die very easily. Or is it my general ineptitude and whining is shining through here? So, you know, this is a, a interesting point because recently I had been playing a lot of ogres. And even with some of the newer stuff coming out, it, you know, jumpstarted me to got the Siegebreaker models and that's cool, but I, I got some of my old armies, right? So I got out, I got out my all cavalry orc army, which turns out is illegal. I have to build some more. Um, I had a proxy in some actual unlocking units, but then I also brought out my old undead army, which doesn't have all the cheese, right? It only had like a, you know, a regiment of revenant cav. It only had two troops of race has no whites, so, and it has no dragon, no worms, none of the, the cool stuff. But when I put it on the table, I played against my buddy Matt at the shop, who was playing as Kingdom's of Men list, and it just hit me. This is an army of men against an army of men. These are two big blocks of, you know, this in my mind is like what I want Kings of War to look like. Um, and I realize there's different armies and some are more elite and some are more horde army, but like this was cool, right? It gave me that that kingdom of heaven feel where you got these two giant armies. Um, and so, and so Mike's question really does resonate with me because there is some truth to it, right? There's, there's a prevalence of crushing strength in the game, right? I think you should always assume whatever's going to hit you is going to have at least crushing strength. One. Yeah. If, if you're, if you're doing a lot of regiments, they're not going to live, right? Unless, you know, you have a weak a, a unique situation where that unit has got phalanx and you're taking a charge from cavalry, But, like, in general, I have been finding uh, when I have been playing infantry, the regiment blocks don't work. And so what I'm typically doing is I'm taking two or three hordes, right, And and then I'm interspersing regiments in between them. Uh, and I'm basically taking the charge with the, with the, with the hordes and then counter punching, if you will, with, with the regiments. I think that that does work. But to his question, is there something wrong if, if a defense four block can't take a charge? I guess it depends on the, the, the regiment of infantry we're talking about. I mean, some of my regiments are only like hundred and some points, right? Kingdom as a man or undead skeletons or zombies. I guess what I'm saying, from a balance perspective, it makes sense, right? If you have a unit that's that's 100, and, let's just say 150 points, 100, 150 points, and they're getting charged by a unit of knights that's a you know two 250, well, on the balance sheet, you would, you should expect that charge to go the cavalry's way. But um, so I don't think there's a huge problem. I do think that there's probably things we can do to uh, you know maybe reduce the prevalence of crushing strength. Maybe that would help infantry in general or maybe there's some more defensive buffs we can give them on the latest unplugged gamers they talked about uh magical artifacts and one of them is the dragon shard um that that in its current form it's almost useless right because you have to basically stay there or just pivot in place maybe there's some ways to take some of those artifacts that aren't really working that well and change it like their idea was you should be able to like maybe move and then drop your in a you know like you're you're moving up and then you're you're drawing a line in the sand and then you're going defense six, or maybe you can um, use it on a counter charge. So as you're counter charging, you can say I'm also putting my my shields up, my dragon charge uh, up. I don't know. I'll throw it over to you. What do you think about this this discussion? In the end. So much of
2: Kings of War comes down to the pilot and not the list, right? I think that the list does matter to some extent, right? You have to be, the list is like getting your foot in the door, right? But to open up the door and achieve victory, you have to play correctly. So I think almost any list can work. Almost any list can work. And again, there's always going to be hardcore ends of that, that bell curve where you have a list on one end of the bell curve and you get matched up against a player on the other list of the other end of the bell curve and you're just screwed from from turn 1 you know there's are still those scenarios but they're not prevalent so i would say in the end when people are thinking about what type of army they want to play or what type of army they want to build i think most anything could work at some level so i think there's the you know there are some lists right you know, that do use a lot of infantry. One that comes to mind is Kyle Timberlake plays a dwarf list. It's not any one thing in his army that's going to get you, it's the combination of things. So I think you can still make medium MMU, right? Medium, medium, multiple unit type lists work. You just got to think about, like, like you said, Rob, how am I trading these points? yeah is it are they elite regiments are they throwaway regiments because really if you have a bunch of regiments that get killed but that's their job then it's fine right um I think there is something to be said about I think the bigger drop units are the bigger the lists with more units is definitely where the meta is going. I just don't think you see as much old school alpha style lists especially with phalanx in the game it makes it a lot harder to create fast alpha strike sort of type lists. So I think in general, the game's moving maybe more towards units, especially now that we're seeing a lot of those uh, four plus shooting regiments unlock now, like with Glade Sockers, especially Flame Bearers. I think there's a really good uh, infantry based regiment based Abyssal list. They're great. Yeah, I think they're really good. And then, you know, uh, Pat Allen was making a comment on the Cronius with Cloak of Death, which with all the defense six, you know, the other side of that is with the, the defense six and the, uh, if you would believe, Tom Annis showering of Wilt Fathers that we'll see soon. It's pretty good. But, yeah, I mean, in the end, I think that they, that they're they fine and can work. It's just one of those things is like thinking about how they're going to work in your overall army strategy.
1: And I'll mention two things. One is, you know, Ar- Aramis brought up a, a point about, you know, hey, if you're taking a charge, make sure it's your stronger. Defense five units. In reality, if you've got a bunch of different units, they each have a role, right? So in my mind, I usually separate them out. These are my defensive units that are willing to take the charge. Either they have phalanx or higher defense. These are my offensive units that typically are going to be like defense three, but maybe they have a bunch of attacks like berserkers or something. Uh, and then you got the jack of all trades in the middle. Make sure you're putting units in the right spot to be successful. And the biggest tip is don't, don't be in a hurry, man. Uh, I have been playing my, our local store owner, Mike, a lot over the last uh, month or so, trying to get him into the game, and he's learning it. And his biggest thing is he's always pushing. He's always jumping the gun. It's like, you know what? Set the trap. <laughs> Take your time. You, if especially if you have that big giant infantry army with all those units, set it up so that when they make those charges, yes, they might get a unit, but they're gonna, you know, they're gonna pay for it. And so set it up. Take your time. Don't rush. Play, play the long game.
2: Yeah, I think patience is a, a really good virtue, right, in, in setting up and realizing that you do have six turns, maybe seven, to accomplish whatever you need to win the scenario. So sometimes uh, knowing when to not engage is is as important a skill as knowing when to engage. Okay, cool. Well, next question we got here, and this is interesting. I'm curious in your thoughts on this, Rob, is you know, coming from Keith Conroy. Will any GTs in the future be at 1,995 or 2,000 points? Are we getting tired of 2,300 points? Because really 2,300 has been the standard for for Masters, right, for the last couple years. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yes, yes, I am so tired of it. I am a person that less is more. So playing at the lower points levels, really, you have less to throw away. Uh, Also, in army building, you just don't get everything. You have to make hard choices. And, um, I, I, really think for me personally, uh, when I play in 2300 or, you know, those big point games, I feel like I'm more sloppy because, you know, the risk isn't there, right? Well, if I lose that, I've got four more units or whatever. But when you're playing on those smaller point games, you have the margin for error is much less. And, um, uh, so, I uh, yeah, I like it. And obviously 1995 is also good because it does cut down on some of the bull crap, right? Cause you only have the two cannons. instead of three. Um, so I, I, I am tired of 2300, and I basically told our local scene, and said, look, I'm done with 2300. Let's play 1995, 2000, whatever. But we need to start playing smaller games.
2: I like 2300 personally. I think it's uh, – I get the idea of, of you have on the one hand, well, I don't have to make any tough choices. I get to bring whatever I want. And then the other hand of that is I get to bring all my cool models. So <laughs> the fact that it takes me a 1,000 years to paint when I finally do get to 2300, points painted i want to you know go down the street in a parade and dance and say look at you know this army that i finally finished um but i get the the need for variety i know that like alamo's coming up right and they do 1995 for the first couple of games and then 2500 for the second half and then i think the king of monsters event in january is going to be 1995 i believe So I think 1995 has a place, definitely. I think 2000, you know, Britain runs the Bay of Kings at 2,000 points. is just old school, 2,000, it's it. So I see the kind of the benefits and detriments to all of it. Um, I kind of like a little bit of everything, so I think I'm probably leaning towards 2,300, but I wouldn't be opposed or against um, playing at another, a different points level. And I know, Rob, we haven't, the Masters Council hasn't yet voted for what the points level will be for Masters that's going to be held next summer. So if you have some feedback on this so you have some ideas of what points you'd like to play, make sure you talk to your region reps um, and let them know sort of where you're at as far as points-wise. Um, but, I, I mean, I've always liked 2300. I think it's a nice mixture of being able to have some stuff. But I do get the 1995 as being... Um, a little bit harder you can't duplicate as much and the games are faster so i think maybe i'm more inclined to like 1995 at 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 regular tournaments or small tournaments but i think for masters i like having a little bit bigger game you know what i mean having a little bit more tools to to, to use within those games being at sort of like the, the championships of the year um but yeah good dialogue a good conversation to have as we're continuing to get into third
1: Absolutely, Alex Mueller asks, "Is there any interest in doing a tournament with a thousand-point armies on 4 x 4 boards?" I love smaller games, and you could have really thematic armies. I'll throw it to you. What do you think?
2: It's the I like this idea when it's the how you use it event you know michael carter at adepticon very uh, for many years had run the how you use it which is essentially every table has two thousand point armies on it i believe they're a thousand points and the tournament is you move from table to table so you're playing a different army that's a thousand point army that's from his collection so i like that idea of being kind of coming to the tournament and being given random stuff and then being like just like a true test the play skill on how you can you navigate it um If it was a one-day tournament locally, I probably wouldn't mind doing a thousand points, playing on smaller games, getting more games into it. But I think if you're traveling anywhere, um, it's at added expense, and I think you would want to have a little bit more of the spectacle or grandeur of bigger point games. But uh, what's your
1: thoughts? You know, obviously, if it's a one-day event locally, no problem. You know that works. I think it also works really well with narrative events the thing we're planning for next year will have some thousand point games in there. Um, but like to your point, you know, why couldn't you do this on a Friday? Right. So you have a two day GT Saturday, Sunday, Friday, you know, historically there's been some events that would hold doubles events or something like that. Why not have a, a four, you know, a thousand point tournament on four by four tables, because it allows you to play more games, which allows you to meet more people, which I think is a good thing. Um, it allows quick, quick games. I mean, you know what an hour, maybe at the most, you know, uh, you can really knock out a game fairly quickly. I think the one the one criticism that will probably be levied is that, and maybe you were trying to hit on this, is that it's a different game, right? So twenty three hundred points is a much different game than than a thousand points, and you do have to pay attention to the scenarios. You do have to pay attention to terrain, and because obviously the smaller the points game, sometimes there's going to be specific units that can even it increases their... Their their brokenness. <laughs> I, I still recall the day where we had a 500 point. Like, hey everybody, let's learn how to play the game. And then we had this one guy that brought like all Soul Reaver. <laughs> he brought like two regiments of Soul Reaver Cavalry. Maybe it was like one regiment and two troops. And I was like, okay, this is not not the intent. So, but I, what I do like about a thousand point game is that it is very different than the other grander size game. And I think you're going to see different army builds. I think you're going to see different units. But I see where you're coming from. I don't know that people would want to travel for a thousand-point game, right? If that's all it was.
2: Yeah, I think it. I, I I think it would work as part of a narrative event, or maybe a, a scenario if you're playing multiple game systems, right? Maybe you're doing an event that will have Vanguard or. Armada and Kings of War to do smaller uh, smaller points games at, as part of an overall structure of an event. I think that in that way it could totally work, right? But um, I think for like your straight typical two-day style GT, it's just too small. But doesn't mean that it couldn't work in other style like cumulative or, or aggregate events that take multiple game systems could be very fun.
1: Ultimately, you probably would be hard-pressed to get a two-day GT for a 1,000-point tournament. 1,500 maybe? I, I think probably like 1,750 is probably as low as I would go for a two-day GT. Uh, because you, you obviously want enough points on the table that it still feels like an army game. Right, um, and you want that 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 Kings of War experience. That being said, a one day you know a local event, I would love to see this man because you could probably get four or five games in in, in an afternoon.
2: Our next question comes from Jake Cherapika. Uh, Jake asks, what ways do you think the narrative play of elements coming out in Halpie's Rift can be used in non planar travel games? Should characters in Halpies Rips be allowed in tournaments? That's a hot-button topic right now. And will Jeremy ever finish his Basilians? Let me pronounce it a uh, la uh, Steps to Deliverance, which we now know is official.
1: That's right. So let's start with the last question. The answer is no. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Jeremy will never be done with his...
2: Well, all great journeys in life are about the uh, journey, not the destination.
1: So I don't currently have my book. It's uh, it's unfortunately in Memphis. <laughs> and uh, I'm obviously uh, vacationing in Michigan this week, so I don't have the book. So I can't peruse at, at my leisure all of the great content. But, you know, I think over the next month or so, as, as these characters get to the table, we will sort of it out, like, do, are they broken? You know, I, I recall back to third edition came out, and I remember everybody screaming, oh, my God, Borgatha's so broken! Ah! And there certainly was the prevalence that he was on the table a lot. But, you know, even before the tweaks to him, like he got he got played less and less. And so I think new supplements out. Everybody see all the new shiny stuff. People are going to start saying, oh, these are all broken. Let's just wait. <laughs> wait a few months. Let's see how it plays out. Um, if if we find they're balanced. I don't have a problem with, you know, um, with putting him in the game. I think that's my concern, right, is if, if if we do find something that's really fun to play with, but it's not, it swings the competitiveness of that army list a different direction, then that, then, you know, it maybe pulls the balance out of the game. And that's a problem. But, like, just take Namagarok. I mean, Namagorak is very similar to what he had before. Right. And he was good before. I think he'll be good again. I think, you know, I I think um, I think most Ogre armies will have him in the list because he's he's very um, effective. I don't know. What are your thoughts on it?
2: Well, as far as the narrative play elements, I'm excited to uh, try out. But again, like you, I don't have my book yet. Um, I pre-ordered mine from Chris Fisher at Troll Horde Games, and they have not received theirs from Mantic yet to even ship to me. So I will say, you know, we talked about this in the past. I I would ask if I was saying my my good night prayers uh, and thinking uh, Papa Ronnie would be to try to somehow do your shipping branding so that on the date that you say is the quote release day, whether that's the release day or the ship day, or try to let your independent stockists have those the the books by then. Because I know there's a lot of people in the UK who would already received their books or people who would got their books. in my local store that I want to buy from are not even my local store, but a local store. I do a lot of my purchasing from local game stores, just not locally to me because they don't carry Kings of War stuff. But I always try to buy my stuff from um, War Room Hobbies, right? Your, your game store, uh, Rob, or from Chris Fisher or whatever. And if the book's supposedly supposed to have been out for four or five days and they don't even have their stock yet to ship to me and then I got to wait three more days. In the end, if it's a new model release, it's not a huge deal, right? I'm going to wait a couple extra days to get my new Worm Riders yeah. or whatever. But when it's like juicier stuff, like a new game or a new supplement book, I wish they would try try to come with the idea of you know a ship date or a street date or maybe work on the, their branding of releasing stuff. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Rob?
1: Yeah, I know. So they just need to stop talking about ship dates. Be like every other company in the industry. This is the day it releases, <laughs> right? And then and then get their crap together so that it, it it's in the customers' hands the day that it releases. I mean, right? That's just the way it needs to really be. Really does. I mean, it- ultimately, that's I mean, everybody should have it at the same time. You know, that's the way Asmodee does it. That's the way GW does it. End of story. That's the way it should be.
2: And it shouldn't be like where you have a bunch of your customers have the product, and then the store that I'm buying it from. They haven't even got it, let alone for them to get it and then them to mail it to me, which is even longer.
1: Right. Well, the problem The problem is it should not be a competitive advantage because you live in the U.K. for a store, right? That's that's what we don't want. We don't want people to have to start buying from specific stores because they know they get it earlier. It's a disservice to the the, the local from the gaming store. So I'm sure they'll get it straightened out. And hopefully our model release, you know, the, they've said they have a release day, right? The 21st, right? So the the expectation is all those stores should have that product to release it on the twenty first. And you know what? Tell those people not to give it out early, right? Just like every you know, Magic's not letting you get out cards early. Make it a thing. Make it a big celebration.
2: You could do some infrastructure or whatever. And I understand that it's like uh, there's lots of different moving pieces and moving parts. And I say this under the uh, the umbrella of the reason why I want all this stuff is because Mantic is making more and more badass products. So the fact that people want it shows you that you're making – that on the p- product creation-wise, you guys are really stepping up your game and doing great. You just – it's just – you, know, you as, as in the game systems, Rob, right, you don't want feel-bad moments. You don't want feel-bad moments either when people are wanting – like here, t- here's the meme. You know, Here, take my money. And it's like I want to give you my money. I want to buy stuff from you. But if the stuff's not there, I have to wait a few weeks. Uh, It just seems like it could be more consistent across different platforms.
1: So it just comes down to make sure you're communicating, right? Make sure the stores know when they're going to get that product. Number two, don't don't treat your online customers better than your friendly local gaming stores. (laughs) Your friendly local gaming stores are why we're here.
2: It just seems like to me making them your priority as, a, as opposed to local orders through your own web store that you would maybe want to make the local the, – the game stores your priority. Maybe ship to them first because I know Mantic often sometimes maybe doesn't have the staff or they're trying their best to get stuff out. Maybe you should ship all your stock to the game stores first. You know, like you said, because they're the nexus, the hubs of the hobby. Small critique, but just something from the outside perspective in that as I'm sitting awaiting waiting for my book, that it would be great if that could be.
1: But back to Jake's first question, you know, what about using narrative play elements coming from the new supplement in non-planar travel games? I think just, you know, from what I've gathered, you know, it's it's wonky, right? So it's going to be a little bit less deterministic. And so for the competitive scene, I don't know that we'll see a lot of that being incorporated into tournament games, right? Because you're rolling on these charts and you're, you know, it, it, it gets a little bit, I hate to say it, but a little bit Warhammer Fantasy Battles-ish, where you're rolling on a chart and anyways.
2: Maybe we'll, what we'll see, Rob, is maybe not full hog crossover but you know tos can really do whatever they want right they they can make their own characters they can do this that or other thing so maybe the halpy stuff like that rich flavorful stuff will be an inspiration for tos to create their own flavor maybe not as wonky as as are as narrative as that but maybe they'll take some of the bones of those systems and use it in creating their own stuff so i think any supplement that gives you more soil to explore is a good thing
1: well and i think you just hit on the head. we may not see it incorporated into tournament play but maybe we're going to see a greater proliferation of narrative events which is what i'm which that's what i'm all about
2: and that's like the undiscovered country for kings right there's there's not a lot of that at all really it's it's a game that very much right now its spiritual core is revolved around competitive play in the master system Which is not bad. I mean, competitive play is awesome. I love it. But it it means that there's an area, uh, a space, right, that has had no real um, development yet, which is exciting. Um, So the characters... this one's interesting. I know Dylan Murray for the King of Monsters event in January is allowing them. And there's going to be some heavy hitters at that tournament. So I'm curious to see. Um, I mean, I think that there are, again, we talk about that, the bell curve and spectrum. Like, there are some characters in that that maybe aren't so great. And then the thought of playing against the forces of nature with its core being all defense sinks phalanx is not super great. either. <laughs> you know, so I know that there's there's some power levels in those characters. That's a little bit, you know, uh, wide spectrum, but something being good doesn't inherently mean that it's not that all of a sudden, if you take that in an army, that army is going to win every single tournament. So I'm in the don't know leaning towards, they'll be allowed. So I don't have an opinion yet, but, I, but I'm in the sort of, I want to see some metrics, I want to see some tournaments, I want to play some games with them myself. Sometimes something on paper seems really great or really bad, but it's the opposite once you actually see it in a game state or in a board state or in a play state. So I'm unsure myself, but leaning towards most likely, more often than not, yes. Um, but we're just going to have to wait and see. So I'm really curious to see come that the lists coming out in that King of Monsters tournament in uh, January to see what people are doing. So
1: so skilled asks, what do you think of having character upgrades to units, a bit like items? I mean, I, that's a great idea. I love it.
2: So we're talking like musicians, champions, yep, veteran sergeants or whatever. Um,
1: right. And it gives you a special ability. It gives you something.
2: I like it. I mean, I think that that's a way – that's something that they they took out of Kings of War, right, that a lot of Warhammer players missed, which was spending one or two points to add in a shield, you know, to have a little bit more um, things to do when creating a unit. I think some of the uh, negative feedback against it was if adding a musician or a standard bearer gave you something that everyone just did anyway – why not just bake bake that right. into the unit and, and make the the list right. building a little bit more simple? But I love the idea of trying to add flavor into the armies, and that could be a way to add flavor, right? Give certain units hero upgrades.
1: I, I mean, the counter argument is, you know, flipping more toggles makes it harder to balance, right? So I get that that argument too. So you got to keep it under control and not and not crazy.
2: One thing we've talked about, Rob, that I'm just going to keep pushing, pushing, pushing because I think it's a great idea, which is maybe not having. Uh, a character to add to a unit but i really like the idea of having unalliable special unit upgrades like that make the unit only a one take right so i feel i I think that that's a space that could be more explored like we talked about maybe allowing a horde of mummies or you know our way you know right a living legend unit basically legend units i think that could be a way to add a little bit more spice a la kind of akin to that being able to buff units but maybe instead of adding like a character to every unit you can add upgrades that make the unit a living legend that's something interesting to explore
1: and it could be maybe like uh Light, formation light, if you will. Like if you, t- if you t- take this living legend, that's the cohort of this special character and you got to take that special character so- something like that. But yeah, I, I'm a big fan of that kind of stuff. Uh, Jimmy G asks, why don't the dice gods smile on me? I guess you're not rolling counter charge dice. Yeah. Well, that'd be my guess.
2: Sacrifice a pig in your backyard or, or, or whatever. Make some, do some barbecue to the gods.
1: So Matthew Temple asks, what are your thoughts on universal battle tournaments counting towards master's qualifications in some regions. Uh, I'm going to give the politically correct answer and then, Jeremy, you can give your real answer. The reality is that, you know, each region can decide for themselves how they want to select their team. The regions are completely uh, autonomous.
2: Well, I think what you say, though, politically correct is true, right? Is that each region, the sort of the spirit of the master's is that each region has agency and the facilitation to decide how their region qualifies because, Every region is so different. Uh, geography, events, player size, player depth, skill depth. I mean, every region is so different. There's no one way to, to, to have a qualifying system that counts throughout the um, state or throughout the country. But I mean, there are some things to think about, right? Our game is traditionally a tabletop game. So if you're saying that to qualify for Masters, someone who only plays on the tabletop has to learn how to play UB, that's not inherently fair, I don't think. Or uh, if someone can only play on UB based on stuff that they can't qualify because they don't want to take the personal risk of going to an event, even though I think events can be held in a safe, responsible, science-informed way. But so I think that there's really some some back and forth in this. I know what we've decided to do um, is we have we are allowing a uh, one out of region event swap in. So for to qualify for the Masters in the West Coast, you have to have three qualifying scores to make the first round of cuts. And then we say we look at everyone who has three qualifying scores and then rank them. Previously, we'd had... You could have one out-of-region qualifier as long as it was a master's qualifier in its home region. You could use that. And then plus we had dual-region qualifiers, so tournaments that were specifically a dual-region qualifier and you didn't have to use your one out-of-region out of swap. So what we've allowed is dual-region qualifiers that are qualifiers in their home region that, are, that uh, are UB but that are be counting as a qualifier in their home region. You can still use those. And you can still use one, your out-of-region swap, you can use as a UB event too. So essentially, you can get two of your three scores with UB events, but to get that third score, you're going to have to go to an event in person. And our thinking is that hopefully by the beginning of next year, next spring, we'll be able to give some more in-person events for those people who haven't been able to get UB scores. Um, But in the short term, Rob, I think UB has been great minus all its time issues, clock issues. We all know the issues surrounding and sort of orbiting UB, but without UB, we would have no Dash 28 Live. I mean, there's a lot of things that have kept us together in the community that UB is the sort of DNA of that. So I think it just comes down to your region. I know the South isn't doing it, but the South has had the opportunity to have more in-person events. And this just may be a qualifying year, Rob, where people just have the minimum amount of events to qualify, and we just this year and a half is just a weird blip in in our history of tournaments but i think for now it's it's goes back to the region that you're in but i don't think it's a bad idea to try to incorporate some ub into qualifying with with sort of the state of the world so billy asked rob will you and i record an armada episode after we get our ships
1: Yes, if, we, if they are released on the 21st and our store has them on the 21st to give them to us, uh, we will probably record an episode the next day.
2: And that's why I bring up this whole thing, because not getting my Halpies rift, no big deal. But if I don't get my Armada stuff on time, I'm going to lose my mind.
1: I'm cutting somebody. So I'm
2: cutting someone. I'm going to the, 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 the Mont's Day Pretzel Twinkie. I'm going to show up in the front yard and be like, where are my boats, bro? So let's just get this uh, solidified and worked out ahead of time.
1: Billy Capcom asks, when will there be more episodes featuring Alex Coos? When you're hearing this, there will have already been an episode out with Steve and Rob Berman and lots of bourbon.
2: I'm just curious when we're going to get the Lost Coosian episode. There is an episode that Alex and I recorded that he was supposed to edit that has been working on it for three or four months. So there is like a like a mystery track.
1: It was one of those times where I'm like very excited to hear that person talk about their army. Uh, and it's, you know a, an amazing, amazing hobbyist. and uh, their story goes untold. So
2: sad. hashtag sad. So Erasmus Berger asks, I apologize if I pronounce your name wrong. Why are there so many reviews for Ratkin and Dwarves and so few for Night Stalker?
1: Before I answer the question, I just want to give it a shout-out to him because I love that guy. We get this every once in a while, this bubbles to the surface, this like this, uh, this sense of entitlement where people think shit should be free from Mantic. And he's always the first one to say, look, man, <laughs> we got to pay for this. And I, and I love that he's a defender of common sense. Uh, but anyways, to the question... You know, why are there so many reviews for Rackin and Dwarves and so few Night Stalkers? Well, this question has prompted me to get off my butt, and we will get a we will get a Night Stalker review together just for you.
2: Yeah, I think with the Army reviews, Rob, really what we do is we try to bring you guys panels of people who play that Army at a high level and who maybe community figures are also too who are good for radio. You know, because the last part of the episode is we're trying to craft a, a show that has – information but that's easy to listen to so sometimes it really depends on who's playing what at the time that they're playing it so but always give us suggestions you know if there's a certain army that you've never seen a review for or that you're really into it you know, definitely let us know. The army reviews sort of just kind of pop up as we're inspired to do them because they do take a ton of work. So you kind of have to be really excited to do them. So often that revolves around one of us deciding to play that army or an army doing well at a a big event or whatever. So yeah, so definitely do that. And just like uh, a side point to what you said, Rob, you like cool stuff. People make cool things because they're inspired to do so, but also so that they can like pay their bills and like... (laughs) pay rent and all that stuff so we got to get away from this whole idea that it's okay to expect that cool things be created for free and that we get to play all those cool things and never have to invest in it now again i go back to that bell curve there's lots of things on that bell curve right like it does make sense to me that errata are balance tweaks there's an argument that could be made that that shouldn't have to be purchased because their tweaks are adjustments being made to the core book that you've already bought I get that on some level, right? I don't necessarily agree with it, but I can kind of begin to see that logic. Whereas paying for a book that has a whole bunch of new content or new units, people may be more inclined to want to pay for that. But that aside, we play a game which game system is model agnostic. So not this company is not telling you you have to buy their models. Already they're saying play whatever models you want. Greg from Easy Army helped develop and support the communities unpaid except for donations for so long and pretty much a huge chunk of the e- easy army subscriptions go to go to him anyway and it's such a small amount of money that I know for me and I know my financial situation Rob or your financial situation is not the same as anyone but buying a book that's 20 or 30 bucks or paying for an easy army subscription or buying some models every now and then i mean Do you go to the? Did you like? Do you buy cups of coffee, or do you go out to Burger King, or what? To me, it's it's just I just don't buy that argument of I don't have enough money for an Easy Army subscription, and maybe that's just like I'm entitled, or I don't
1: know. I mean, what do you think? You hit on the head. Errata corrections should be free, right? But what's in the book isn't corrections. They're not errata. It's it's changes, right? They are changing. They're adding new units. They're adding new ways to play. So that's not going to be free in my mind so you said something before he said you know the company also you know is one of the reasons why it's you know we say figure agnostic but also the community doesn't expect you to play with mantic models if you look at other game systems um, I'll give you a classic example my local infinity crew would not be okay with you proxying in models for the infinity game my local 40k group would not be okay with with you proxying in some other random tank. It's not just the company is supporting of, of, of Figure Agnostic. The community is as well. And because of that, I think there's some implications, which are, well, then we got to pay them somehow, right? You got to, you know, if you want to keep this game going, then they need to make some money. And, and, I, and I will say, most players are buying models, right? Let's be honest. Most players are like me, that like I have an army that's not a Mantic army, then I buy a Mantic army, and then I buy a Nami, you know. And so most people are buying Mantic models. Maybe we're making more uh, more more out of it than we should,
2: and maybe we are. I just think to think about uh, contributing to the game that you love and the community that you love. But also, I just want to say that even though I think that this is, I have an opinion doesn't mean you have to share my opinion. And if we disagree, that's totally fine. I know we had a really interesting chat in the After Dark uh, messenger cord where, you know, I love Riley to death, but sometimes him and I disagree on things. And we were able to have a a conversation where we disagree on stuff, and that's okay. I think that's something that right now in sort of our polarized world, it's hard to find that space where we can uh, constructively disagree. So. If you disagree with what I'm saying or with Rob saying, that's totally fine, and you know, feel free to come in and let's we we can talk about these things and not immediately go to that space of uh, trying to shout each other out. But just in, in in the end, I would just kind of come back to the f- fact that you know, for Kings of War to exist and for us to have this great game, great game that we love, Mantic has to be able to make money
1: somehow. And and the message is this: just think about how you can contribute to that, right? Some people, it's buying books. That's fine. You know, however you can contribute to keep our game going, we appreciate that, I think, on the whole. Because ultimately, you know, the the argument that some have raised, well, let's give it like Ninth Age. How's that going? If you want a game to succeed, they got to be able to get a hold of it in the stores.
2: And you really hit the nail on the head, Rob, which is find a way to contribute. And that doesn't mean buying models that you don't like or books that you don't like or whatever. But try to find the things that you see Mantic do that they do right that you do like. Get that. Buy that book. Buy that model. Just f- find a way to to, to uh, support them on, on, on some level.
1: David Cross asks, when will Ogres get a review as to Regiment Unlocks? Honestly, I don't think they're ever going to go back and look at this. I don't know how uh, everybody else plays, but my Ogre Army, I don't need the unlocks. I play a lot of Hordes. I don't have a problem with unlocks.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Dan King talked about this back when we were uh, doing the third edition stuff, where really large infantry regiments are supposed to behave sort of like troops anyway, but they just didn't change the language. So I think that that's just sort of a way that's intended for those large infantry heavy armies to work. And I know some people have wanted to do super character, heavy builds, or I, I mean, I know Matt young was pretty frustrated on this, but in general, I most ogre players are still making lists that they really like and have fun playing as far as I've seen. So, I, I don't really see it as an issue.
1: General Qaddafi asks If you could launch any new army or revamp any army, which would it be and why? What's your answer, Jeremy?
2: Oh, that's a good question. I would probably say, and I guess I'm Lens. I mean, I play a lot of different armies, but I'm Lens somewhat because I play uh, Basilians. Um, <laughs> Basileans. Um, I think the sisterhood and Basileans need a rework. Um Sisterhood Infantry share too closely some similarities with paladin foot guard as far as offensive output, but with paladin foot guard you get higher defense, more survivability. And since Sisterhood lost uh, headstrong and don't have um, any sort of waiver mitigation like a lot of fanatic units, I feel like they're in this sort of strange space where they're not as good arguably as paladin foot guard for a sort of offensive infantry unit, yet They're still expensive, and uh, you don't necessarily fill the role of just volume of attacks like zombies or ghouls or something like that. So there's been a lot of talk on on how to redo Sisterhood of maybe having on-foot Abysses have access to battle chants, which give auras. You know, the foot abyss model from Vanguard is amazing. Such an awesome model. It's probably one of my favorite resins uh, that they've done. So it would be great to have that in the list. And usually people only take the Abyss mounted because they give the Abyss the, uh, the Mournful Blade, put it on a speed 10 panther, and then there's their character hunter. That's usually the only way people are taking Abysses right now. So it would be cool to see some more love given to the, the structure of Sisterhood. And then you could do that in a way that also would make people want to use your really, really cool models. So that's probably one that jumps off right at my head is a whole section of an army that's pretty much by all all Basilean players. No one really uses any of those Cicerid models. So something to jump out to you, Rob?
1: Well, so you you want a warrior priestess?
2: Basically, yeah. It could be anything. You, you know, I just think that the, the design space for those units just seems too uh, – it, it could be honed a little bit, I think.
1: I, I would be loath to say to, – to offer up a new army. I think – I've always, my contention's always been we have too many armies, right? Uh, it makes balance hard. It you know, And so I, I don't think we need another army. I think all the different play styles you can think of are probably covered. Um, and so if I'm looking at the armies, I think, I mean, Salamanders kind of feels like they, they could use a little bit of a refresh, right? And and, and, and maybe not even so much from the, the army construction or the unit types, but like model range. I would love to see them have like just a bunch of cool plastics, that could then double into forces of nature and, and other armies. But, you know, I think I think salamanders are due for some real love. Yeah,
2: interesting. I think that, uh, I mean, I think they're a pretty strong list. Um, uh, i played some games against Pat and um, Pat Allen, and also Ryan Munsell plays salamanders a lot. But I, I completely agree with you as far as the amount of armies. I think with all of the armies and, you know, there's been talk of this too, with all of the armies and all of the sub factions and whatever, really, in my opinion, you shouldn't, the need to allies are the, the, need. I mean, really there should be a faction that you can find now that fits your, that gets your juices flowing. Right. Um, so I'm pretty happy with the amount of armies. And in general, I think I'm pretty happy with, with where the game's at actually, um, you know, we'll still have to see what the new update changes where where we see but i think there's a lot of different armies
1: and a lot of different builds that are all interesting Stu asks what's your favorite tweak on the standard scenarios uh, ones that you've managed to add a bit of narrative to the out of the buck ones you know my stock answer is go back and look at the old scenarios like the ones where we're destroying tokens and scour and I find interest in that you could take some of those concepts and mix them into the current scenario and kind of you almost put two scenarios into one. The other way is, you know, really not great for tournament play, but you can have asymmetric scenarios, right? Where like one person's objective is one thing and and another person's is something else. I, I think that's cool, too. So uh, what about you?
2: One of my favorite ones, and I think I mentioned it on the show before, is Rashad does a tweak on dominate for Riddle of Steel, uh, and he calls it the Tree of Woe. So basically, it's the in uh, the Riddle of Steel, it's a Conan Conan based uh, tournament. So different scenarios are sort of different elements from the Conan story or the Conan movie. And there's this one scenario where in the part of the movie where Conan is like tied to the tree, that it's dominate. And there's a tree in the middle of the dominate circle that's a piece of like uh, uh, terrain, but it's not really trained for game purposes. It's just there to be a uh, element of the scenario. And the tree causes dread. So basically, it's a nice play on having to get into the circle for dominate, but when you come into the circle, your nerve gets reduced. So you're trying to balance that of getting units into the circle, but knowing that there's like a penalty for doing it. So that's, like, I really love Rashad's Riddle of Steel scenarios, and that's one that I think is very, very fun. Okay, so Matthews asks a couple of good questions here. His first one is, what is your favorite unit and why?
1: I think we should tackle it modeling and rules. So rules-wise, I, I the Siegebreaker changes in 3rd edition have been amazing, right? The fact that they're no longer slow, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean you got to go I mean if you're an Ogre player you got to have some siege breakers man I mean they're just they're just too good not to From a rules perspective what about you?
2: From rules probably he's got to be Sam or Chris um She's won so many games as being a flying unit strength one. The fact that she's defense five, has regen, heal five. She's got fireball eight with piercing one. She's got the healing aura, which combined with being able to heal herself with regen plus cast heal on herself and then being a unit strength. um, She's not very good in combat, which is fine. She's just one of those great pieces, Rob, that can do so many different things in so many different situations. So like a really nice, uh, uh, like uh, uh, piece that can really perform in scenario play. So I, I can't make a list without her in it.
1: And then how about modeling? What's your favorite for modeling?
2: Uh, that's a good question. Um, looking at Mantic stuff, I love, I absolutely love, and I wish they could somehow do more of it. But the new Vanguard... Uh, dwarves—they're unbelievable. Awesome. I wish I wish I could do a full army in in in, in Mantic Vanguard dwarves.
1: The ogres even are better than the than than the dwarves, right? So, like to answer the question, I'm gonna say the new Boomer Sergeant. I mean, he is unbelievable. Where he's like boom, and he's like kicking out a shell out of one. I'm like, this dude is amazing. Or the or the ogre bully. There's like points in your life where like. like I've been mean, putting together these ogres for Vanguard, and they're they're all on this table together, and and it dawned on I me mean, like these are better than anybody's models I've ever seen. Like <laughs> these are as good or better than any other company's resin sculpts. End of words.
2: The best resin. Period. Like you say, Rob. I've gotten resin from all the different companies. Not only are the the new Mantic resin sculpts amazing, the resin itself is like butter. It just goes together. It's not brittle. I mean, get some Raging Heroes resin and talk yeah, to me about yeah. brittle resin. I love that stuff, but oh my god, you sneeze at it and it just evaporates. Um, yeah, I don't. I can't think of another company that's doing as good or better resin right now than Mantic is doing. Cool. And then his second question was, "What are the best and worst parts of podcasting?"
1: Well, why don't you take it and then I'll and then I'll chime in afterwards okay so the best part
2: i would say is you get to interview a lot of really interesting people you get to talk about stuff that you like i know for me what drives my episode choice uh, in the airbrush episode that we recently did is a perfect example of it which is you get excited about something new or you want to work on a new army or you want to learn a new painting technique or hobby technique or you want to like talk about a YouTube channel you love. The podcast allows us to interview the people who create those things. So it's like really a nice to be able to, um, have that agency of being able to connect with the community people. Um, I think the the hardest part again is, um, just the time commitment. I mean, I like to view my podcasting as part of my overall hobby life. So, my hour a day hobby sometimes means I'm editing instead of painting, um, which I enjoy the podcasting. Don't get me wrong, but I know there's sometimes when I'm have a tournament coming up or I would really just love to be painting where I have to edit because we do really try to do professional content for you guys, which takes time. I know usually if a podcast is an hour and an hour and a half, it's probably four hours of editing for me anyway, because I'm slow (laughs) in all things I do, um, but I think the positives outweigh the negatives, right, Rob? Or we wouldn't do this sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, and I think I would echo what you said, right? Which is the, the the best parts are when you get to talk to somebody you hadn't talked to before, meet some new folks, you know, explore a topic you hadn't really had a chance to sit down and think about, and you have that really engrossing conversation of, oh man, that's really neat, getting other people's you know point of views. Uh, the the negative is obviously you know. We, we, we kind of set the bar high in terms of standards. We, we don't just record and put it out, right? Uh, we edit and we try. We do our best. Um, depending on time crunches, sometimes we don't get to edit it as much as we would like. But just roughly, you know, an hour of content is probably taking two to three hours to edit, right? And, and, you know, you do the math and some of these, you know, some of these two or three hour, you know, army reviews are the classic example. Those take – a really long time to put the show notes together, to get everybody in a room together to actually record it. Uh, and then to edit it, it, it could be a month long process to get it where we, to our standards that, that, you know, that we're happy with. So I wish there was ways to, to be better at it, but ultimately, you know, you got to edit it. <laughs> All right. I think we've beaten that to dead. So we did get a question <clears throat> from Chris Davis. He asks, why is it a tier three mage seems in most cases to be vastly inferior to lower level mages when it comes to actual casting mechanics. Um, he's specifically asking pre Halpies Rift. Uh, so pre-Halpy's Rift, there is no correlation to magical tears and magical acuity or the ability to cast spells. So um, anything you're seeing is just attribution error. And so you're reading into things because there, there is nothing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I know that Halpies Rift is bringing in a lot to do with, with mage tiers. And I know, you know, um, in that uh facebook thread people did talk a little bit about how different tiered mages currently their access to spells usually comes with more spell dice so like a higher tier mage on in some cases can get more dice for a spell but i think really you know along with the um The keywords, right, Rob? There was some future stuff put into the game that maybe didn't have as much relevance or as as much in-game mechanics at the time that it was put in, but more so kind of trying setting the seas for some possible ways to go into the future. But if you do want to see the mage-level stuff, you can go into Halpy's Rift now and get a lot of flavorful ways to play using different mage tiers.
1: You know, I would almost say, too, to his original question... You know, rather than talking about it based on magical tiers, you know, you could look at it from a cost perspective, you know, how many points the, the mage costs, but that's a little problematic because cost isn't uniform across the entire spectrum, right? Like that mage may be worth more to that specific army list and it it, it, it may cost more.
2: And like Matt James replied to that thread too, which is essentially just like what, what, what Tom and other people had said previously, which is the higher level the spellcaster is, the more dice they get for right. spells really as being kind of the basic, simple aspect of how it affects gameplay.
1: So Nick Brook uh, mentions a little bit about the Green Lady and the Brotherhood, um, but his question is, you know, do you think it would ever be feasible for Mantic to license the franchise to video game studios so they could create a King's of War video game like the Total War franchise, for example? I, I think the answer at a basic level is yes. I think a couple things to keep in mind. One is... They need to put more effort into, you know, continuing to build the actual world, right, so that they have very specific mantic, air quotes, IP armies. I think right now, you know, that's probably their biggest problem, right, is the fact that they have a game based around generic, in some cases, generic fantasy tropes, right, which is why the game is so figure agnostic, right? You know, and I think if if they can continue to, to evolve that through their their books and through their rule books and their audio books and as long as they can continue to evolve that narrative so that, you know, it's not, it's not Bretonian, right? It's the brotherhood. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. I mean, when you think about it like the GW, uh, as like a correlation or pal- parallel, right? How many years of world building did they have under their belts before they started doing video games and granted video games weren't really a thing when they first started. So it's kind of like, uh, a, uh, a, loaded question a little bit you know but i mean there is something said to keep building the world each each thing that they do makes the world that much better keep doing books keep getting the books narrated so i can listen to them on audible please and uh, who knows down the future but i think it's really like uh uh that's a, a little bit of a dream at this point i mean when you just they keep going back to I know Ronnie's been on the show before and said all of Mantic's yearly business was the same as the Warhammer store does. So it's like one GW store. So I think often it's dangerous to try to look at comparisons between GW and any other company let alone Mantic, when in, the ga- in the game sphere, right? I mean, GW is a monster. You know, we listen to Mark every day talk about how he's so sad he sold his GW stock. So, I mean, it's like a, it is on the other level, but I think that, to me, video games is a way to explore world building, so let's just keep on that world building train. Hong Soon asks, which faction do you think is the weakest, and what could be done to balance it? Also, which faction is the strongest, and how would you balance it?
1: It's an interesting question, and I think you could probably look at that question uh, like within a meta in a small group. I don't think you can necessarily answer that on across the grand scale because I generally I w- I really do think that the factions are relatively balanced, right? And I also think it comes down to players' uh, ability, right? I, I, this is not a list building game; it's more about player ability. Um, however, one thing I would do that would increase the balance further is just get rid of allies. Hallelujah. That's what I would do. I would just get rid of allies because, you know, all these armies have shortcomings built in, right? And the allies are just a way to mitigate around them. Just get rid of allies.
2: Let allies be a part of the kitchen table and let allies grow strong within the garage. But when it comes to competitive play, there's real no reason to have it. I get the idea of wanting to try allies in while you're building an army. Thus, kitchen table, garage, game store, perfectly accessible. But when it comes to competitive play, you really should have the unit, the the, the, the army, done. And often when people say, well, what's the point of this allies? It's because my faction doesn't have X, Y, or Z, so I'm taking this so that my army is more OP. So, I mean, very rarely will people have allies for thematic reasons, you know, I ran Jarvis once, which was kind of fun. And I know Matt Carmack has talked a little bit about sort of the fun dynamics on how Jarvis can change a list. And that's a little bit outside of allies. But usually w- when you see allies, what are you seeing? You're seeing like uh, fearless chaff. You're, you're seeing people are allying in the things that everyone knows are undercosted or are, are, have issues. So I know this is a hot-button topic and lots of people agree or, or disagree, but for me, when it comes to competitive play, if they just removed allies, um, I wouldn't have a problem with it. But um, again, these are just like our opinions. Um, and I think there are some outliers, Rob. Maybe there's some factions we all know, Undead. Abyssal Dwarves are pretty good. Um, maybe some other factions aren't quite as good, but I still agree with you. I think any any list can win on any given day if played correctly and that really um, it's more about... Uh, player skill as opposed to list. Like, just look at, like, usually at events or whatever, you hear or see the same names no matter what lists they play. So, you know, there's something to be said about that.
1: And this might be a question we can come back to, because I think if you look at this, like, at a local level or in a small meta, and also break it out based on player skill. So, like, there's certain armies in a awesome general's hands. You know, it almost mitigates any deficiencies, right? I, I you know, So I'm rambling.
2: Yeah. I mean, you could take some of the best players in the country and give them any army and they could probably
1: hold their own. Do
2: okay. You know what I mean? You know, maybe they're not min max pushing it hard, but, um, they could still be competitive. So,
1: and if and if I had to be pushed to an answer, you know, I think Herd is probably a little bit under the under the gun right now. They don't really have they don't really have the tools.
2: Billy asks an interesting question about. Um, I'll read it. What do you think about armies becoming invalidated due to things like the irregular tag? On the one hand, if one were to create a balanced army with a mix of different units, the likelihood of this happening is low. On the other hand, who gets to decide what kind of hobby is best? Perhaps some people like spamming the same unit or min-maxing their unlocks. I think this is a really good question.
1: And it's actually tied to what we just talked about, right? So a lot of these things of what's irregular and what's not are based on what needs what they don't want to al- let be allied. So if you get rid of allies, some of this stuff goes away.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's one way to fix it. And I really like get what Billy's saying, which is normally if you build a combined arms sort of list— where you're t- taking units that are good, taking stuff, models that you like, not investing on any one thing, usually those armies are pretty safe for the most part, right? Sometimes they, you know, uh, uh, that's not always the case, a la chariot unlock changes or stuff like that, where really affected how people build their armies are our, our real big faction changes, like elf faction changes, which really changed how that army played. But in general, usually if you play that style of list, you're, you list, you're at less risk to be hurt, but yet on the other hand other hand, Billy does bring up a point, itch is who am I to say that someone else making an all Wraith list or an all gargoyle list all that, that they're doing it wrong? I think it's I don't have a, a a great, you know, an easy answer for that question because it's it's really you could see both sides.
1: I mean it's a, it's a great question. It's a great question.
2: How, this is how, how I sort of view it. I'm not the judge and jury of how you hobby. Do whatever you want. I'm ha- if it's someone's cool and nice, I'll play them no matter how hard their list is. I had a great game against George O'Connell shooting goblin lists at Masters. I happily play anyone who's a nice person. I don't care what you bring. Let's get it on. Let's have a good game. But if you knowingly are playing a list with packed full of under-costed and or arguably two better stuff, play that list, live it, but don't be shocked if it gets changed. That's the thing for me is like that's in walking on the razor's edge. That's the risk you take,
1: right? So I mean, I can only speak for myself, right? And I do have an orc army that's all mounted. I I did it because it's it's fun, it's themey, right? But the reality is it's it's pretty one sided, right? So the fact that when the the fight wagons became irregular, well, that meant I don't have enough unlocks in my in my list anymore. You know what? Who's to blame? Well, I'm to blame. I'm p- playing. <laughs> I'm not playing a balanced army. Had I had just one or two units of infantry, it's not an issue.
2: Yeah. Just play whatever you want. You know, again, I, who am I to tell you how to build your army? But I just think have some culpability and then some awareness that if you are playing a list of a bunch of broken stuff, that, that broken stuff, may get changed and just realizing that, you know, lists change. And also too, um, uh, I get, I really I feel your pain and feel your tears when you say this whole army that I lovingly painted or whatever I can no longer play it in the style or way that that I want to play it and I do get the who are you to decide how what makes this game fun I should be able to decide what makes this game fun. But in a perfect world, we got to try to find some middle ground, right, Rob, where we can bring as many people together and try to make the experience fun for as many people as we can, which is trying to create fun, thematic, or balanced, or whatever you want to say, a play, play environment. So I don't think there's an easy answer to Billy's question, but I think it's one that we'll probably continue to talk about and debate for, for until the end of time.
1: If you play on the Ragged Edge, you, in case you're occasionally going to get burned. I have an all-mounted orc Army list that's got two legions of fight wagons, they're irregular. Well, I got to pay more gore riders now in a story. You can kind of read into Billy's question here. If you're playing a balanced list, you're, you're fine. You're not going to get burned. And, and I also want to make the distinction they don't invalidate armies, they invalidate lists.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be changes that you can make or whatever. So I just want to say that, like, I, I really see both sides. I mean, I see where people are coming from when you have that feel bad moment where your army is not good anymore. But on the other hand, really, it shouldn't be a, it shouldn't be like a shocker, like if you fill your army with only one thing that's super points efficient, and then all of a sudden that one thing gets changed. I mean, I'm not uh, holding it against you for making that style of list. I don't personally make lists that way, but you, you know you rock it, bro. But you shouldn't be shocked and uh, taken aback that all of a sudden that's changed. Now. Um, the, the army, the whole army's changing character and theme from edition to edition. I think that's a little bit more valid of a thing. Like, I do get a little bit more sort of the, the, the uh, I would have expressed it less drunkenly ranty, but I get where like Keith and a lot of the elf players were coming from and that their army completely changed from edition to edition. That I understand a little bit more, but in the end, I think if you try to make fun, balanced lists, that's how I would avoid ever running into that problem.
1: So Billy also asked, if you could have one Mantic Army done and painted right now, which one would you choose?
2: I would say based on this being painted by someone else immediately, I would take a 10,000-point Goblin Army.
1: That's a great answer. I think the new take process, a Horde Army because if you're saying I, I, somebody else has painted it – yeah, I'd probably, I'd probably do Ratkin or something. Goblins, yeah, that would, that's a smart answer.
2: Because the, both the new Goblins and the new Ratkin are just so awesome. I love them. That new starter box, I'm just – that's going to be the first starter box from Mantic that I buy for Kings of War that I don't even know when I'll get around to. But I'm just going to get it because those models are awesome. Uh, I love the new Goblins, but with me knowing how long it takes me to paint, I just would never finish a Horde Army. So that would be my choice.
1: Dwayne asks, "Cavalry and chariots are such cool models and units. Why can't the rule sets make them viable to put on the board?" And there's some discussion there. And I think I think his point is that he's trying to make is that well phalanx is a big deal. Certainly, if you have a, uh, a heavy contingent of cavalry and chariots and you're playing against an all phalanx army, you're going to have a bad day. I don't see those kind of lists where you have a lot of. Ph- I mean, you may have a few units of phalanx, but not a whole big list. Uh, and so it kind of goes back to Mike's point earlier, which is you got to have your units in the right spots. Be patient. Set up the charges in the right way. Don't charge your horde of uh, chariots into a you know a, a horde of pikemen <laughs> from the Kingdoms of Men. That's 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 not the right answer.
2: Yeah, I mean I think that with with bringing chariots back, chariots back to being able to unlock. I think we'll see them. I know Shannon Shoemaker, perfect example. He ran chariots and his goblins and he took them out of the goblin. He stopped playing goblins. Not so much because the chariots in and of themselves were no longer good is that he didn't just did not have the unlocks anymore. So I think that that was one fix specifically for chariots to uh, make them viable again. Um, I mean, I have played double night cav in my Vassalian list forever You know, uh, and that list has done really well. You know, it won Riddle of Steel a couple weeks ago, and I had to play in that list three of my five opponents were all master's level players, so that list can work well. You just have to know what the knight regiment can do and can't do. You can't charge a regiment of knights into a horde with phalanx and expect to do anything, right? That's where you're speaking to Rob of of knowing how to engage units and where to deliver them. So I think knights are fine. I think they're good. You just got to think about how am I using them, where do i deploy them do i am i chaffing for them correctly am i charging the right thing you know just don't put your knights across from all their phalanx but that being said if you do happen to play a knight heavy army and do happen to get matched up at a tournament against someone who has all phalanx that's the nature of the beast that's part of part of uh, a well a part of uh, miniature gaming and competitive gaming in general that there is some matchup dependent scenario dependent Usually, people who win events, uh, win tournaments. They played correctly. They got lucky in certain key dice roll moments, and they also had good matchups. So that's just part of the nature of the thing, I
1: think. Well, I just played my all orc army against uh, Mike at the shop, who had two big hordes of Pike, right? And that's a problem. But the reality is, if you if you do have to, you know, if you're in that matchup where yeah, he's got Pike <laughs> with ensnare and all the nasty failing stuff, you know. You're just gonna to have to go in big. <laughs> so I mean, I put a horde of, uh, put a legion of fight wagons, a regiment of Gore Riders, uh, and something else into them. And if you put enough into them, you can overcome that, right? Yeah. So no, good point. But yeah. it's it, you know, ultimately, that's my own poor list design <laughs> put me into that position, right? Like I really an all orc arm, all mounted army may not have been the best come all you know take all comers list right a balanced approach give you give you, you want all the tools
2: and i've moved more towards giving knight regiments offensive items as opposed to pathfinder or strider because if a unit's disordered the phalanx minus to hit like doesn't stack with that so essentially i know i'm probably always going to be at minus to hit anyway against phalanx whether i'm you know, tr- charging through terrain or not. So I'd assume rather just make them hit harder.
1: Yeah, just give them a sharpness.
2: Yeah, especially 16 attack knights or like you know any any knights that are lower than tw- 20 or maybe even 18. Just give them strength or a lead or sharpness or, sh- you know what I mean. I think so. I think there's some tech stuff you can do in list design and also play uh, uh, to to make those units count, but. You just can't just throw them into a horde of long acts and expect your one night regiment to do anything. I mean, that's just not going
1: to happen. It's what we said a million times over the course of this conversation, right? Which is each unit has a job, and hopefully you've put various units that have different jobs in your list and make sure you're making the right matchups, right? It's, you know, and, and if you don't have the right tools, it, it, it is what it is.
2: And sometimes you just lose. It's okay, Sometimes it's like I think there's an expectation people have, like a bias outcome expectation, where you feel when you enter into a scenario in a competitive sense that you should win every time. And the reason when you don't win, it's because something's unbalanced, the other person got lucky, or whatever. But I think sometimes you just lose. You make stupid mistakes. The dice don't go your way. Your opponent outplays you. You know, it just happens. So I think looking at at, at losses. More from a perspective of what can I learn from this to get better and less through a lens of what's inherently underpowered in my army or overpowered in their army. I think you're going to net more positive outcomes by looking at the tangible lessons you can learn as opposed to trying to lay that defeat at at the throne of improper game balance.
1: Not much else I can say about it, you know? Well, that's all of our questions. So, thanks everybody that contributed uh, to the discussion on the Facebook page. It was awesome. So, uh, final thoughts, Jeremy?
2: So, after dark's going strong, um, we're going to be doing coming up, uh, we will be doing a paint a fleet in a weekend challenge for Armada. So, stay tuned for that. We're still kind of waiting to make sure we have an idea on release dates on when we're going to hold that um, event. But stay tuned. We'll be doing some um, a la uh, Army Spectacular, trying to get our fleets going. Um, yeah, so uh, stay stay tuned for that. We got a un, uh, Always, we got a bunch of episodes coming out for you guys. And again, continue to let us hit us up on the Facebook page if there's any topics or stuff that you want to uh, see us talk about. Um, any shout-outs for you, Rob?
1: Yeah, I'm just really excited to get all the new content coming in and help his rift and the new starter box and uh hey i've got a night stalker army being painted by billy so i'm excited about that i finally wore him down it took me like four years of badgering but it finally happened so i'm gonna fantastic. have a night stalker army yeah fantastic that's awesome yeah so i'm super pumped about that and uh i think that's all we got for tonight so until next time keep
0: counter charging for listening and we'll see you next time on counter Charge. Music is a composition of Kevin MacLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.
1: Well, awesome. We figured we would... uh, So tonight what we figured we would do is we would do another listener questions episode. Rather than, you know, some of those more exhausted listener topics, this is more of you guys post some questions and we're going to give you some snap-off-the-cuff answers. That you, uh, hopefully we'll, hopefully, uh, Jeremy, you take it. <clears throat> Explain what we're doing tonight. I'm terrible.
2: So we got a question from the always sunner and oh,
1: <laughs> <clears throat> Mr. Danny DeVito himself. Yeah. I'll just redo this. Cause this is terrible. That's <laughs> going to be one of them nights. <clears throat> And our buddy, Kroger, has a bunch of questions here that we're not even going to bother taking the time to answer because, really, all they are about is... Stroking you know, his buffering ego. Buffering his... Exactly. <laughs> he already knows the answer. Of course I like Alex. Who's the best? That one. Uh, so who's the best hugger? Jeremy. Well, let's see. Dwayne Robinson. No, not Dwayne Robinson. I mean, I'm just, I'm just excited to get uh, the new two-player starter and help his rift. and still just there? really yeah, uh <laughs> I muted myself.